Thank you, worship team. Uh, it was a great song to end on, the I believe, I believe, I believe, and, and we um, turn back to 1 John, which was written, as we know, to tell us how we know that we believe. Right? As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, faith, belief, these words that we often give our own meanings, uh, we often don't give them the meanings that God gives, and He works to give us those meanings so that we can be faithful to Him. And as John tells us in 1 John 5.13, so that if we say we believe, we can actually know that we're saved and have eternal life. Now, last week, we explored actually the amazing truth that believers, those who truly do believe, are children of God. And we are not going to be, but we are children of God right now. But the thing in that sentence is that we're children of God if we are believers, and so this week we turn back in 1 John as he takes us again into indeed how we know that we are believers. Because as he lays out, all people are either children of God, this wonderful, blessed truth, or we are children of the devil. And he has given us very clear signs. God has given us very clear signs and tests that show us either one. I want to give you two examples from the church. So here we're going to look at the church, not an individual. The church is made up, as we know, of God's people, called to be pure and holy and righteous and following Him. Now, one of these examples is most clearly a child of Satan, and the other is a child of God. It should actually be easy. I, don't, I picked extreme examples, so I don't think you'll see that I'm going out on much of a limb to say this. The first example comes from a news story about a West Coast church. And some of you will have seen that this week, no doubt. The headline was one of those headlines that you kind of can't pass up. It's clickbait for sure. But I read the article, and the article itself, and large part of it is an interview, it is chock full of all of the kind of postmodern relative truth claims that you see in the more liberal, um, I, I hate to even call this a church, but those claiming to be a church. The sort of things of Jesus wants me to just be happy no matter what I do, or he made me this way, so he loves me in my sin, and I don't need to do anything about that. That's God's doing. All of those kinds of things to make you feel better. But let me read you a quote from the pastor. This quote, the moment I realized that my occupation doesn't define who I am was the moment I was able to begin a process of healing, and through this healing, with God's help, I began to know who I am. On the face of it, I don't think anybody would think that sounds like a terrible quote. I mean, it does have a lot of the seeker-friendly buzzwords in it. Um, but there are actually many things wrong in this church that claims to be a Christian church. Uh, first and foremost, uh, this is a woman claiming to be an ordained pastor over and over again. I won't go down that rabbit hole right now, but I will just tell you again, there is absolutely no concept biblically of a woman serving as an elder or pastor of a church. So this person starts with the denial of God's truth, and it always goes downhill from there. But it wasn't being a pastor that she's referring to. That's not the role that she says God made her as and where she can get comfortable because God has given her that comfort. Here's what it's about. You know that wouldn't make any headlines. Here's what it's about. She is currently very active 
in a long career that she has maintained as a performer in adult films. Now, I cleaned that up because there are kids in the audience. I actually despise the fact that we give nice-sounding terms to terrible things, you know, women's health care instead of murder, adult films instead of what they really are. But it gets worse. That's her profession. That's what she proclaims. And she and her husband, who's a co-pastor of this church, they promote her work on their church website. So alongside the sermon videos, you get promotional videos for her work. I did not go to the site. I'm not giving you the name of the church because I don't want any of you either to do that. But she leads not only a life of sin, a life of open rebellion against God. She actually, by assuming this position, encourages others to do, leading many astray, no doubt. And this article, the whole thing, could form the basis of hours-long discussions to show what's wrong, but I'll just use the words of Christ on this one part. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him, her in this case, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's Luke 17, 1 and 2. It is a disaster, a train wreck. So I want to give you the flip side. Let's consider the proper role of the church, the people of God who are saved, who are faithful. And for this, we'll go back to the church fathers. And we are going to talk about Cyprian. Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage in and around 250 A.D. And he wrote a letter that we still have today. It still exists today. And it's a letter to Eucratius. I've wondered all, all week if I was going to be able to get that out of my mouth. Eucratius. And it's a letter, actually, that we should expect to see in the modern church. We don't. But what he's writing for is there was a pastor of a local church dealing with a difficult issue and reached out to him as well as some others to ask for their guidance. And that's what we often do as elders of the church. We reach out to those pastors in other areas and say, Give me a gut check, right? Show me in the Bible. Am I looking at this right? And what he's struggling with is how to advise a man who had become a Christian, who had been baptized and become a member of that church, how to advise him on what to do about his career because he was an actor. And just like today, the theater of that time promoted all kinds of deviant sexual activity from just promiscuity, sex outside of marriage, to homosexuality, Everything was, was off-limits. There's nothing new under the sun, right? We, same today as it was then. And he knew as a follower of Christ, he knew this much, he could not continue to act. He couldn't continue to act and promote those kinds of behaviors. So what he was asking is, can I take a step back and teach? Can I just teach the skill of acting to other actors? He was a very prominent actor. He knew that he could do that. And the problem was that was his only means of financial support. It was the only way he could feed his family. There was no welfare. There's no unemployment, right? There's no government checks that just magically get printed like there are today. He had to support his family or he would die. So how does Cyprian respond to this? Cyprian does not respond like our modern-day false teachers. He didn't reach out to him and say, God made you an actor. Clearly, you're very good at it. Uh, so... Teach away and feel good about this activity. God will understand. You profess to love Jesus, so he'll understand if you then engage in encouraging others to sin and living in sin. Now, 
That is not actually how Cyprian responded. That's how we see people respond often today. Cyprian responded, he must stop acting and he must not teach. He can't be anywhere near this. But, and this is what we as a church need to hear, it was a two-part response. He must not do this. He can't continue in sin that way and the church must supply his needs until he can find another job. And just to up the ante, Cyprian, who pastored a church in a different city, said, if your church won't do it, we will. We will. That is how important faithfulness to God is for Christians. How important purity and righteousness and obedience to God is for true believers. And that is how important the role of the church is to its members to ensure that, in fact, they have the means to walk as Jesus walked. Cyprian knew, and we see throughout 1 John, that there is no wiggle room whatsoever to tolerate a life of sin, a pattern of sin. We can't just wink at it, because we're going to see in our passage this morning, it is not just a matter of preference, it is a matter of eternal life in heaven or eternal damnation in hell, and those are binary. There is no in-between, there is no other way, for for no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 1 John 3.6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you still basking in the glow of the glorious truth that you spoke out through the Apostle John that should we believe in you, repent from sin, and believe that we are children of God, your children. But we also turn this morning to explore some hard truths. Father, we pray that no matter our presuppositions in approaching your word, that you work in our hearts and open our eyes and open our minds to your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our focus this morning is going to be on only two verses. 1 John 3, verse 4, and verse 8. You're going to see why that is. This will be a little bit of a series, probably just two parts. On this passage, we're going to read verses 4 through verse 10. That is the entirety of this section. Starting in verse 4 Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him. Or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Uh, In our passage right here, John is returning to the moral test, right? There's three tests in 1 John. He's returning to the moral test, the test of obedience. And this is how we can know that we're truly saved. And this section really begins back in chapter 2, verse 28. Because in that verse, we saw that there is an essential, a necessary connection 
between knowing God in a saving way and practicing righteousness. Those two things are connected. And then John takes this brief pause, and it was a fun pause. It was a glorious pause because he steps away from these tests for a moment to provide us with a glimpse at God's incomprehensible, immeasurable love for His people. That for anyone who's born again by the work of the Holy Spirit, who repents and believes in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that we're children of God. It's amazing because it's not in the future, it's right now. And then he concluded that section with a verse we didn't spend a lot of time on because it leads into this current section. And that was verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, in Christ, so believers, purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, for those who are following Jesus Christ, we cannot help but reflect our Father in heaven, His Word, His will. So he returns to the moral test, and this is why we're going to break it up as we do, because what John does here in this passage is he's got two parallel sections with very little difference, and he kind of gives us the outline for how to think about this particular text. In verses 4 through 7, he addresses the nature of sin. He addresses Jesus' work to take away sin. Then the reality that Christians who claim to follow Jesus Christ while continuing in sin, it's a lie. They cannot make that claim. And then the logical conclusion from all of that, that those who practice righteousness, that they reflect their Lord and their Master who is perfectly righteous. The outline for verses 8 through 10 is almost the same. Slight difference. Instead of the nature of sin, it's the origin of sin. Jesus' work to defeat the devil, the fact that if you are a child of God, you cannot continue in sin, and the identity of people as either children of God or children of the devil based upon their righteousness or their lack thereof, their life of sin. In short, what John is telling us in this text is that to continue to live in sin is disobedience to God's nature, His design, His revealed will from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and it is completely contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is completely contradictory to why the Son came and suffered and died. And just to be clear, so nobody walks out of here feeling confused, he is addressing habitual sin, right? a pattern of behavior, a lifestyle of behavior. And it is clear, it is crystal clear, you can't argue it, that to continue in a pattern of sin is to demonstrate that you are not saved. John is crystal clear about this. We are reminded again in this passage that the determining factor of your salvation is not verbal, right? It's not verbal. It doesn't rest on a prayer that somebody wrote for you to say, like a magic spell, and that you can then go back to your old life, right? That doesn't reflect saving. It's not based on your feelings either. A profession of faith is helpful. uh, Telling people that you love Jesus or that you follow Jesus is absolutely useless unless you flee from your sin and you live in righteousness. And again, we are talking about a pattern of behavior, a lifestyle. Will Christians sin? Yes. John's already told us that we cannot be perfect. It leads us to repentance. We're talking about unrepentant. Sin. I know that this is countercultural. This is not the fun message that pastors give on a Sunday morning. 
We live in the midst of churches that embrace all kinds of sinful activities, even have on their own leadership teams those who live in open sin. And we're not called to run around condemning them. What we are called to do is pray for them. Pray for their repentance. Pray for their salvation. Because the Bible clearly tells us that they are not saved. Right? And their churches operate in open rebellion against God, and they are lying to them. They're always crying out, peace, peace, where there is no peace with God. It's Jeremiah 7.14 playing out in the modern church. The world and the apostate church often says, follow your heart. That's where you'll know God made you, and that's where you'll be pleased. You'll know that He made you that way so you can be happy in your sin. Just follow your heart. And I'm just a little parenthetical here for you. Don't focus in on one sin, right? There, is, there are prevalent sins in the media every day. John's talking about sin, not the one sin that we can identify in that guy or that girl over there, right? So it's everything. Don't approach it with a narrow mind. So follow your heart is what the world says. But we know from what God says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9. So you can't go off your feelings. The only heart worth following is not your own. It is the heart of Jesus Christ. And you can only know His heart by His Word. You have to be in His Word. And for those who believe, we actually have that ability and that desire. Why? Why would I say such a thing? Well, because... God promised, and He delivered on the promise that He lays out in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the characteristic of a new covenant believer. Right, A new covenant believer, one saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the very Jesus who said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So John is he's giving us an urgent petition here to understand what it means to believe in Jesus Christ so that we're not deceived by our own heart. And so we're not deceived by culture and what it approves. And so that we're not deceived by false teachers in churches or other places who say that you can be saved in Jesus Christ and live in opposition to Him and His will. I want you to understand as we read this passage that what John lays out is not aspirational for believers. That's not what he's doing here. It's not something to aspire to. He is absolutely not laying out the difference between Christians those who are saved, and super-religious Christians, like really good Christians. John's doing nothing of the type, though you hear that distinction made all the time today. Very clearly, what John is laying out is the difference between those who are saved and those who are not. Those who are forgiven and destined for glory in heaven with God, and those who are not and are destined for eternal punishment in hell. He's not defining Christian and super-Christian. That's a concept that doesn't even exist. He is defining faith and belief. Right? Not levels of faith or belief. 
He's defining faith and belief. And he does this in several sections, as I noted, and we are going to focus on just verse 4 and verse 8, the, the fun sections, the nature of sin, the origin of sin. They both begin with absolutes, and you need to take note of this. They start everyone who, in verse 4, and whoever, verse 8, makes a practice of sinning. You need to see here that this is universal. There are no exceptions. There's no ability to make a relative truth claim here. It applies to every single person in exactly the same way. There aren't differences. There's no God made me different argument available. It applies to everyone. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That is the type of verse we can just read right over and keep going. But what John is addressing here is a problem that plagues our modern church. Too many people think that they can just ignore certain sins as minor. Or they're overshadowed by God's love. They don't really count. Uh, they seem to think that what they're going to hear when they stand before Christ as judge is don't sweat that sinful lifestyle. That wasn't that big a deal to me. Well done, my good and mostly faithful servant. Come on in. No such thing exists. What they will hear on that day is I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Exactly what sin is. Matthew 7, 23. You can go back to the Reformation period. This is a problem plaguing the church from the earliest days to today. John Calvin noted that in his day, the word sin seemed so light to some. But in looking at this passage, the realization that it is a violation of God's law makes it clear that we cannot be so easily forgiven. It cannot be so easily overlooked. We are meant to loathe, to absolutely hate our sin when we know the holy God is our Father. He writes this, The perverse life of those who indulge themselves in the liberty of sinning is hateful to God. And cannot be born with by Him. Cannot be in His presence. Because it is contrary to His law. Remember, when we talk about God's law, His law is nothing more than a reflection of His nature. Who He is. It's not something He makes up external to Him. It is who He is. All sin. Even if we think of it as small. Even if we think it's insignificant. Even if it's culturally approved. Sin is lawlessness. That is what John is telling us. That is its nature. So what? So what does lawlessness actually mean? That's not a word any of us use every day. If, if we did, we'd probably get laughed out of a room or something or people would quit talking to us. Nobody uses it. So what does it mean? It is more than simply disobedience. It's more than disobeying God's commands or His moral standards. It certainly includes that, but it is more than that. Because it extends to the very heart, to the very attitude of rebellion against God. Romans 8, 7 and 8 captures this a little bit for us. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Once again, you cannot have a foot in both the world's camp and Christ's church. It's either or. Donald Guthrie is a theologian, and he captures this well when he wrote that, that this is what John is getting at when he's saying lawlessness. 
Sin is a deliberate rejection of God's standards and a resort to one's own desires. Sin is a deliberate rejection of God's standards and a resort to one's own desires. And you see that everywhere, even within the church today, even within faithful churches, we slip into this. We follow our desires, and the world is certainly ruled by this, following desires rather than God's. It's this constant desire right from the beginning, right? Satan's fall, Adam and Eve, to be like God, to be his equal, or to be above him. And we refuse to submit ourselves to him. And we believe instead that we can embrace lifestyles of sin and still be saved. And this is true in the church. I'll give you a couple statistics. Barna did research this year. And what they discovered was that four in ten Christians, four in ten who say that they believe in Christ, not only approve of this behavior, but they actually advocate living with your boyfriend or girlfriend prior to marriage. That is a lifestyle of sin, incongruent with a confession of faith. Yet 40%, four in ten Christians, advocate for their children to do this. According to Ligonier's annual state of theology, only 25% of evangelicals, right? That's us. That's people who believe the word is the inspired word of God, every word of it. Only 25% of evangelicals think small sins are deserving of punishment or eternal damnation. Who decides? Who gets to make the decision that this one's small and that one's big? Who is God? Us or God? We have to be very careful because even within the church, we begin to replace God's truth with our own carnal desires, our own desires to go our own way. And people who pretend to love Jesus actually do it the same way that people outside the church do it. And how does the world justify immoral behavior or unethical behavior? And again, I will say we do it exactly the same way. In an article in Psychology Today, the number one way is to view behavior as a gray area. And I quote, one way to avoid a sense of culpability or guilt is to define a behavior as morally ambiguous rather than defining it as clearly wrong. You see that excuse used by professing Christians all the time to justify sinful lifestyles. We can't tell. God may have destroyed entire cities with fire and brimstone, but I think he's kind of whispering. I can't figure out if he likes it or doesn't like it. It's absurd. We actually don't have that luxury in the church. But many in the church and even the church's pastors follow this secular notion as their theology much closer than they follow the Word of God. There's obviously lots of other ways that we justify behavior as small sins or, or, or things that, that can escape God's judgment. Things like trading off good behavior and bad behavior. I did these things, but, you know, I went to church, right? So those are kind of, they cancel each other out. And there's a bunch of others. When we justify our sin, and I want you to really keep this in mind because this is one that I think we need to be honest with ourselves on. When we justify or we minimize our sin, what we are saying in that moment is for these sins, for these sins in my life, I do not need a Savior. I don't, I don't need a Savior. Jesus' suffering and death on that cross was not necessary for me. Not for this stuff. 
These sins will be overlooked on the basis of my goodness or my merit or my desires or the culture's approval. Uh, The holy God didn't need to punish this. I'll decide. Culture decided. They're good. This behavior is now good in my mind. And God has given us a warning against that. Isaiah 5, 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. By what standard? By what God has said is good and by what He has said is evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. We know deep down inside that we are total fools for believing this way. We know this because when God revealed His very nature, when He passed in front of Moses, when He showed His goodness and His glory and His majesty and His justice and His faithfulness and His love, He said in Exodus 34, 7 that He will by no means clear the guilty. Any violation of God's law. He will by no means clear it. But then His mercy comes. And His mercy and forgiveness comes in only one way. He still must punish that sin. He must punish the sinner. But He punishes the perfect Lamb. Jesus Christ in our place. But all sin must be judged. All sinners must pay the penalty. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, He was perfect, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we so wrongly ignore the nature of sin and we justify it, but all sin, even the smallest of sins in our view, is lawlessness. And that is the exact opposite of righteousness. Romans 1.18 tells us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He cares about every sin. He concludes that section speaking to those who are outside the kingdom of God, those who will suffer eternal punishment. And he says this about them. Though they know God's righteous decree, they're not ignorant. They may even profess to be Christian. They may even come to church. But though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. All sin, no matter how hard you attempt to justify it or offset it with your good works, is lawlessness. It is open rebellion against God. It is the desire to have our way over and above God's way. And we know That to live in sin, to have a pattern of sin in our lives, is not consistent with our claim to know Christ. It is inconsistent with claiming to be a child of God, born anew by the Holy Spirit. You have to remember that this test is not new in 1 John. It is a theme. He began it in 1 John 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. We can say that very clearly. If you continue in a pattern of sin, no matter whether you profess to be a Christian, you will die in that sin and go to hell. Because it's a lie. That's what he's telling us. We're reminded again in 1 John 2, 4, and 6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
we have to continually remind ourselves, because these truths are hard, that as we study 1 John, we are examining the difference between being forgiven and inheriting eternal life by the perfect life of Jesus Christ, by His substitutionary death on the cross where He was the propitiation for our sins, and by His resurrection versus deceiving ourselves, no matter what we proclaim verbally, while we live as children of the devil, while we face a destiny of eternal judgment for our sins, eternal punishment, because those who live in a pattern of sin are indeed aligned with the devil, not with Christ. And words that we say don't change that fact. 1 John 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning for the, from the beginning. You're either or. As God's image bearers, we are designed for worship. One of those options is we will worship God. And that includes a lot more than coming once a week to sing songs and listen to a sermon. It does include that. We're called to that. But it includes far more. Worship in God includes elevating Him to His proper place above all things in our lives. Living to please Him. Sometimes suffering for Him. We have such a hard time with suffering. We're called to suffer over and over again to take up our cross. We think of suffering as little Johnny's not going to make it on time to the baseball game. We'll give up God and we'll make sure we're there. Like, suffering includes those opportunities that sometimes we miss. We have to choose Him above all else. Loving Him with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, following all of His commands, in other words. That's true worship. If we don't worship God, we will worship something else. We will worship the devil, is what John tells us. We don't call it that, right? We think that's that weird Satanism group that that you can look up on the internet. That's worshiping the devil. We have lots of other names for our idols. We have career. We'll sacrifice everything for our career. Kids, family, where we live, the time that we have, God, because we can't make it to church. We'll sacrifice everything for career, sports, friends, allegiances to organizations, some of whom are even, say, they're Christian organizations. It's actually kind of an interesting thing. I, I talked to a pastor out in Colorado Springs, which is, houses a lot of these nonprofits, and he told me, don't think any of those people actually come to church because they feel like they do their work during the week for this nonprofit, so they don't actually come to church. That was one of his big frustrations. Right? So we'll align ourselves with organizations and minimize God. Political parties, my goodness, we turn everything, uh, we avoid hard topics in the church by saying that's political. We have allowed politics to overshadow the Bible. Absurdity. Our imaginations are absolutely limitless when it comes to creating items to spend our time on, to take us away from God. And our only protection against that has already been told to us in 1 John. Abide in Christ. Abide in Him. And we can only do that when we ground ourselves in His Word, when we surround ourselves with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to keep us accountable, to keep us on the right track. Because we will serve something, and when we serve something or someone, we will be a slave to that person. Romans 6, 15-18 says, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is what John is pointing to when he says everyone who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. It's pretty clear, very black and white. It's not a complicated sentence. We just have to know when we look at this to get rid of our our problems of discounting sin, right? Sin is not a passive response to our culture, our situation. It's not a negative response, meaning like we don't do anything and it just happens to us. It's not just a weakness. It's not just a failure on our part. No, sin is active. Sin is a positive decision to act on our part. We take the action to sin. It is the violation of God's law and its disobedience to God and His will for us, which is holy and righteous. And we can't downplay this because we make those decisions. And it reflects every time we make those decisions who we serve. God or the devil? The Apostle Peter warns us. He says to be on guard, always watching, be careful. Something we can do only if we're grounded in God's Word. There's no other way to be on guard. He says in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. John tells us in this verse that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. From the beginning. Clearly referring to the fall of Satan. When God created the heavens and the earth, He created everything good, perfectly good. But there was the fall that's described for us. He is an enemy of God. He is an absolute adversary of truth. Think about how it started with the fall of mankind. It was Satan who took and twisted the promises of a very generous, loving God in the Garden of Eden, right? God's promise was to allow Adam and Eve to eat of every tree that was desirable to them except one, except just one. And how did Satan flip that to recharacterize God, not as good, but as wicked, as mean, as evil, as someone who withholds the pleasures of life from his children, right? He twists it. He says in Genesis 3.1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This your God, one who keeps you from good things, you should rebel. It's the same trick today. How many people in talking to someone have you heard say in response to your gospel presentation, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I believe in Jesus, but I'm, I'm not religious. What do you think they're saying to you? What they're telling you is they can't adhere to anything that God actually tells us in His Word. They can't buy into that because in their heart, they believe the devil's lie. That God actually keeps us from good things. This very God who knows us intimately as our creator, who designs all of this for his glory and our good. Now, he's keeping us from good things. So I, mean, I kind of believe something, who knows what they believe, but, um, but I'm not religious. Because that God is, is, is a mean God. He keeps me from doing what I like. And this doesn't always have to look like gross immorality, right? This is where our minds always go. It's not just sexual sins that are 
at issue here, though these often make the best examples, given the times we live in, it's easy to use those examples. We're warned in Scripture that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. You can take otherwise good activities, things that you can justify at least as good in life, and place God in distant, distant second in your life behind these things. As, as parents, we all know we do it with our kids. Right? We do it with our kids. We think as parents that our first obligation is to make sure that they're happy, make sure that they have every opportunity in life, and we'll sacrifice God on the worship of our children for that. And God calls us to do exactly the opposite. God calls us actually to teach them to take up their cross and follow Him. That sometimes in life, there's sacrifices that must be made to follow the one true living God who sent His Son to die for us. That we worship Him above all things. That He's our priority. He is preeminent in all things. He is deserving of our glory and our honor. And I know we can't make it there on time. But we can't make it there on time because we worship the God who loves us and who calls us His children. Not many parents have that discussion today. They say instead, we've got to get out of here. It's going long. We've got to make the first inning. We need to be careful. We can take good things and we can allow the devil's work to turn them into bad things. We are a fickle creature. And we all do it. This pastor up here does it, right? It's easy to do. John's already talked about the nature of sin, right? In verse 4, habitual sin brings us under the condemnation of God. Here in verse 8, it is different. He is saying that habitual sin places us squarely under the dominion of Satan, under his rule. And we become an instrument of Satan's work unwittingly. We sort of lure the world with our behaviors and our own lifestyle of sin into thinking that it can follow God when it's convenient but hold on to everything else, ignoring or choosing when to be ignorant of what God has clearly spoken by His Word. And we become complicit in that when we identify ourselves as Christians and do the work of the devil by living a life of sin. But is the devil the cause of our sin? We know the phrase, the devil made me do it. We see that all the time. No. Unfortunately, no, the devil, we actually don't get to blame the devil for our sin. In James, in James 1, 14, he says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is our own desires at work in us. The devil works to tempt us. We make the choice the verse that you see in your outline is James 4, 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, and he doesn't answer with the devil, right? is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You're des you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Bible sometimes speaks to us so plainly and so clearly, it's amazing that we can ignore these hard passages because it just places us in such an uncomfortable position in culture. 
And we forget who we serve. We forget that we serve the sovereign God. And while the devil's not the cause, he is at work. And we have to have a solid theology of the devil. The Bible speaks of him from start to finish. And he'll ultimately be defeated. But he is at work. We saw that he is the one who presented the temptation to Adam and Eve so that they went against God. They stood in opposition to him. We see in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. What do we look like before we're saved? You were dead in the trespasses and sin. And sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is a word or a phrase referring to Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's still active. That's the basis of Peter's warning that he prowls around. He still opposes God. He still hates Jesus. He still hates every single person who says they follow Jesus. He plants doubts and lies in the hearts of men and women, children. And he maximizes the discomfort of believers. Both in terms of the way culture has moved. I have this thing that really... It's been on my heart all week. You know, when I grew up, I loved sports and I was involved in sports and there were never sports on Sundays because they recognized that the family unit was a unit and that church was so important to so many people. I think of the way that that society, part of society has changed. Pastor at my former church, his son was a great baseball player and the, their games were always on Sundays. And he just had to tell them, well, he's not going to make it till the third inning every Sunday. Um, but it's just the world has changed, and the devil is at work. He opposes everything of Christ, including his worship. But he does plant doubt in the minds and hearts of people. Jesus explains it this way when he's telling the parable of the soils, right? When he says that the seed falls on these different kinds of soils, speaking of the gospel, the word of God, and the soil being man's heart. He explains one saying, the ones along the path, this is Luke eight twelve. the ones along the path, are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. He's active. It's not deniable. He speaks of the devil's nature in John 8, 44. He says to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He hates man, God's image, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. God hates lies and he hates liars. We went over that recently. So when somebody stands behind a powerful platform and speaks lies, tells dishonest truths, manipulates people, they don't speak for God. They speak for their father, the devil. Now that's where the brilliant statement by G.K. Chesterton always comes to mind. This isn't a quote. This is more of my own paraphrase of it. because I didn't look it up. But he says, when people cease to believe in God, which is where we're at today, when people cease to believe in God, it's not that they'll believe in nothing. It's that they will believe everything. Very easy to manipulate at that point. God is truth. Satan is lies. And he's active. He also places many temptations in the paths of believers. Saw it with the example of the church I gave earlier from the West Coast. But the easy example is always sexual temptation. And you could use that in lots of different ways. So I'm going to pick a minor way. Marriage. Marriage is the only place that God has ordained sexual activity. 
But he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back together again. Why? Why do you need to come back together again? Because God knows our hearts and he knows the devil's at work. He says you need to come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. I have counseled a number of people who both have addictions to pornography and have experienced marital infidelity. They always use, this is an excuse. Not an excuse. It's a warning. We know what to do. There's other temptations. How about money? Prestige. Getting that right title at the job. Having the right career path. So you can tell people. Being viewed as a, as a big shooter in life that people want to be like. Ananias and Sapphira give us this example, right? They came to the church, the early church. God cares deeply about the purity of his church, and they lie. They, they, they had money, they had land, they could have kept it. That wasn't a sin. They could have given part of it. It wasn't a sin. It was the lie to come and be the big shooters in town. So everybody would think, look at what they did. They lie about what they give. And Acts 5, 3 says, Ananias, Peter speaking, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart. To lie to the Holy Spirit. Keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. We know how that ends. He dies on the spot. God's judgment executed instantly. You can give any number of other examples, but for the sake of time, we just have to acknowledge that we can go through and look at other activities of Satan. The cruel persecution of believers. See this around the world. The efforts to stop worship through either our own temptations to go do other things or simply closing it down, corrupting the lives, the hearts of those men called to lead who fall into sin, false teaching, about questioning God's goodness, working that little voice in the back of our mind. So when things don't go our way, we are angry at God. We don't look to God and say, God, teach me, show me, draw me close to you, Carry me through this event. No, we sometimes say, why me? Why me, God? I go to church. I do the right things. Why not someone else? This can't be for my good. It's a lie. God is good. Even the reality of death and the fear of death is an instrument of Satan. Christians don't fear death. I mean, I don't want to die. Don't get me wrong. Nobody else should want to die. We don't fear death. We know where we're going. It's just like Paul said, for me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Death is an instrument of Satan. Let me close by pointing out why is this important? Why, why do we spend all this time on sin? Why, why does John do this? And, and believe me, it kind of hit me hard because at the last minute I went up and preached in, at Good Sam on Thursday and I actually sort of did a different type of sermon on God's goodness, sort of what you guys heard a long version of. They got in 10 minutes. It's possible, believe it or not. Um, but don't get jealous. Jealousy is a sin. So, you know, you, they only got a taste. You got the, the full meal deal and then some. Uh, but after that sermon, then one of the gentlemen there approached me. He said, thank you. I really enjoyed that sermon. And I thought, well, this is good. I'm going to have a good conversation. He said, I just remember in church, all they ever talked about was sin. And I thought, well, you probably don't want to listen this week then as what I was thinking, but, you know, I did say to him, there's no gospel. 
until you understand the nature and condition of humanity and our need for a Savior. And so that, without understanding ourselves, without understanding sin, you can't understand the gospel. And that is, in fact, the main reason we spend all this time on it. Without an understanding of our condemnation in, in front of God because of our sin, there is no recognition of the extent of God's love and His mercy that were shown to us by providing the only means of salvation and eternal life. Because when God sent His only Son, right, when Jesus was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, when He lived a perfect life, though He was subject to every temptation that we face and more, because He actually had the power to do something about it that we don't, when He suffered at our hands, when He gave up His life in a cruel and terrible way on that cross, when He experienced the wrath of God for the sins of those who will believe in Him, God wasn't just doing all that to give us a little light insurance policy that we could latch on to with the doing of some act of worship or saying some prayer and then go back to life and ignore Him. None of that is true. What God was doing was instituting a new covenant with His people. A new covenant. We celebrate that every time we do the Lord's Supper, right? The new covenant represented by His blood. And in that new covenant, He promised to infuse in us a new heart. And He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out on every believer. New life. A life where we get to recognize that we're children of God. And we have both the capacity and the desire and the capability to live for Him. We look at texts like this and we say, "Well, well, will Christians fall into sin? Yes. Yes, they will. Christians all sin. But that sin by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, drives them to repentance. He convicts us of our sin, and He drives us to repentance. That's one of the key features you see in an unrepentant sinner. They can tell you they're a Christian and that they're engaged in some life, and you look and say, well, that's like on every other page of the Bible. How, How are you not convicted by that? You think you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? We have that benefit. But we know that we will sin. John, John addressed this. 1 John 1, 9, we won't read it. You can go back to it. And 2, 1 and 2. He has told us it's actually a sin to claim that we're perfect and that we're out without sin. So we can't get there. We know that. But what we're told here is to engage in a pattern of sin, a lifestyle in opposition to the will of God as laid out clearly in His Word. To make any excuse of a new cultural approval and or a lack of clarity, we can't understand it, or, or anything else, all that points to is that that person justifying that so hard is sitting on the outside of the kingdom of God. They might look good to us, they might say the right words, but they're on the outside of the kingdom of God. You see, there is absolutely no promise of forgiveness or eternal life to one who is committed to a lifestyle of rebellion against God. There's no promise of forgiveness or eternal life for that person. And 1 John is clear. Look at this. There is hope. There is always hope. The hope is in Jesus Christ, right? All people are called to repent of their sin, to turn away from that sin and believe in and trust and follow and submit themselves to Jesus Christ. We never look at those people and say, they're lost. We're not God. We look at those people and our hearts should cry out to them. 
We should be in prayer for their salvation, for the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and ours. Because there is hope in Christ right up to that moment where He takes you off this earth. And there's no second chances at that point. When they do that, when they repent, when they turn to God just like us, they have a new life. They're children of God. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we celebrate with Jesus when that happens. You can be a child of God. You can be a child of the devil. But there's nothing in between. And that's hard for us to accept. Let me really close with one verse. You ever notice how pastors can say, let us close for a half hour? We will really close with this verse. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And I want to emphasize a couple of things as we turn to that. First off, this is one of many lists of sins in the Bible. So don't think this is comprehensive. The second, and I really want you to see this, what Paul is laying out to the Corinthian church is exactly the same thing that we just got laid out for us in 1 John. These are the same things. Paul is being way more specific. John is being very general. Sin is lawlessness. But both have the exact same message. There is no inconsistency with God. He never changes. But here you're going to see the promise. And we'll turn to that promise because it's in 1 John as well next week. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, crystal clear. Do not be deceived, he says. To believe anything else is self-deception. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, very broad category, nor idolaters, another very broad category, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Very clear, very broad. But here's the promise. Here is the promise of new birth, of transformation of your hearts with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. You don't have to stay in your sin. You are not lost forever. You can answer that call to repent and believe. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, He gives us hope. Hope in His promise. But that hope is only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please do not let us harden our hearts against Your Word. You have given us such clarity. And yet, whether it's us working or the devil working, it seems we work so hard to cloud it to make it obscure, claim words don't mean what they mean. That is pure wickedness, Lord, and we repent from that. We turn to you. We know there's consequences for, for following you. There's rewards that far outweigh those consequences. Lord, help us always see that what we give up in this life is temporal, that we have the benefit and the joy of partaking of Christ's sufferings because He's our Lord and He suffered like we will never have to. 
And let's always have an eternal focus, something that, again, I struggle with, and I know we struggle with, to think of eternity. Give us that viewpoint. Give us the ability to rest in your promise, no matter what life throws our way in the moment. God, please change our hearts. And as you change our hearts, give us a passion and a zeal for the purity and the holiness of your church. Guard our hearts. Keep us true and pure in who we align ourselves with. And let us reach the lost. Father, place them in our paths and give us boldness to speak truth in love to them. Father, let us serve you and give us that desire, that ability with new hearts seeking to live righteous because our Lord was pure and righteous and holy. Lord, we long for the day of his return. We pray with the saints, come Lord Jesus, come. Bring an end to this madness. Bring your new heavens and new earth. And in the meantime, Lord, give us strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.